work together, gotta make tomorrow better. So there are dreams enough to go around. Tomorrow is a brand new day and a brand new door. Please, don't be afraid to walk through it. Feel the top of your ears reach up like a little fairy elf. Close your eyes. Let your eyes enjoy the darkness. Take a few deep breaths and just, you know, try to fantasize a little bit, you know? Think about the past, something that brought you joy. See it, believe it, and you can make it happen. WCBN FM Ann Arbor is taking Freeform out of the studios and into the streets for this year's 4th of July parade, featuring the WCBN Free Jazz Marching Band. The parade begins at 10 a.m. at the intersection of East William and State Streets and will proceed west on Liberty and loop back around down Main and back eastward on East William. Featuring every musical instrument known to man, from tubas and trumpets, to kazoos and guitars, tambourines, bongos, accordions, a shakuhachi, sitar, recorders, hurdy-gurdies, and maybe melodicas. Come out and celebrate freedom of noise with your friends at WCBN. In free form we trust. Well, it's a little after 6.30 p.m., and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer, where this just in, no rain anywhere in sight. Yeah. This is beginning to resemble the uh, drought of 88, and it's uh, I haven't seen a heat wave like this in <coughs> Ann Arbor in quite some time. So well, We're 4.6 uh, inches uh, below, below average now, mm, right yeah. now at this point uh, here in... Not even really the midway point of summer. Yeah, well, it's scary because uh, usually the hottest week of the summer is Art Fair weekend, so Art Fair week. Indeed. Well, of course, this week there'll be a lot of uh, 4th of July celebrations, so folks, be cautious when you're doing those uh, fireworks. There's a lot of tents, more tents. I think fireworks are more readily available than they've been in quite a while. Be careful. Yeah. You don't they, set uh, your neighbor's yard on fire there. One of those important areas of uh, Republican policy. They, they wanted to deregulate uh, Michigan's fireworks laws to put them in compliance with Ohio, I believe. Theory being that we, uh, we're we losing firework sales to Ohio. Uh, I don't know how many people were driving down to Ohio to pick them up, but uh, don't be surprised if the beneficiaries of firework sales here in the state of Michigan are contributors to the Republican Party. There's usually a linkage, as we've seen with the bridge controversy. Well, a big week with the, uh, we'll get to Richard Nixon uh, momentarily. Got to keep the uh, 40th uh, anniversary update ongoing regarding that uh, creep. <laughs> Committee to reelect the president. But a fascinating week uh, involving uh, some Supreme Court uh, rulings, obviously, the health care uh, law, which is, is, I think, inappropriately named. I don't think it should be called the Affordable Care Act, more like the Modest Health Care 
Coverage Reform Act. But anyway, uh, big surprise. Not a big surprise for me because I think when we talked about the oral argument several uh, months ago, I thought that the law would be upheld 6-3. Uh, I thought that Roberts would uh, look at his role in history, uh, which he did. And I think that it's a refreshing surprise that he did vote with the liberals. Uh, I read a book about two months ago about the battle that FDR had during the mid-1930s regarding the uh, striking down of New Deal laws and the so-called eventual packing of the court. And the fact that Charles Evans Hughes, at the time the Supreme Court Chief Justice, and ironically an associate justice named Owen Roberts, ended up switching sides as the New Deal was struck down uh, quite a bit in 1935 and 1936, but by 1937 and 38, they were actually siding with the liberals on the constitutionality of some of the New Deal legislation, which was comprehensive and across the board. And one of the more famous, the two most famous uh, New Deal pieces of legislation that were struck down were the uh, NRA Act of 35 and the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933. Very interesting book. I should have brought the actual title. Oh, I've got it here. Let me uh, recommend this book. It's called FDR and the Chief Justice, the President, the Supreme Court, and the Epic Battle over the New Deal. And many of the historical events that occurred in the mid-1930s are occurring right now with our Supreme Court. At the time, there were three liberals on the court, four conservatives, and Owen Roberts and Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes, who's a very prominent figure in Republican uh, politics uh, throughout the early part of the 20th century. He ran for president in 1916 against Woodrow Wilson, and uh, he was eventually named Secretary of State for a period of time. So he was a sort of man who wore many hats and was actually one of the great statesmen of the Republican Party of the 20th century, the early half. Uh, and he'd also been, ironically, on the court earlier um, at one point, but he resigned from the Supreme Court to run for president in 1916. Well, that's a little bit of the history there. But it's fascinating that this is the first time in uh, Chief Roberts's uh, tenure that he has sided with the liberals. Uh, there was a very interesting... Right-wingers feel sideswiped and betrayed. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting news analysis on this in uh, Friday's uh, New York Times uh, showing that uh, this was the first time that Roberts had ever sided with the liberal ring, wing, and Anthony Kennedy had sided 25 times in five to four decisions. So I'm not too sure if Roberts was the one that switched sides or whether Kennedy did, hmm. uh, but that will be something that historians can analyze uh, at a later date. It's interesting that on a number of the 5-4 decisions that were decided uh, this, this, during this past term, because the uh, uh, term has just ended, um, Roberts and Kennedy voted the same on all cases except the uh, Health Care Act and a couple of what I would call criminal uh, defense right uh, issues where... Uh, Kennedy sided with the liberals. One was a law requiring juveniles convicted of murder to be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. That was ruled unconstitutional, with Kennedy voting with the liberals. 
and Roberts voting with the conservatives. And the other case was a criminal defendant's right to effective legal counsel during plea negotiations. This is another kind of interesting case that might have uh, people might have missed because, in essence, the uh, Supreme Court ruled that plea bargains are essentially the criminal process at this point, uh, noting that something like 90% of all cases end up being plea bargained. Uh, very few cases actually go to trial. So this was very interesting that Roberts uh, voted with the liberals. And as we noted uh, during the oral arguments, um, look, if Congress had just called this a tax from day one, their constitutionality of it never would have been right. questioned. So this gets into the murky area of the Interstate Commerce <laughs> Act and the whole issue of government regulation regarding interstate commerce. And, of course, this issue was at the heart of the New Deal. Um, at one point, it's interesting to note that in the early part of the 20th century, um, the uh, Supreme Court, I think it was in 1918, struck down a law that prohibited child labor uh, re regarding goods involved in interstate commerce. Mm -hmm. That was eventually overturned by the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court does change its decisions. Most famously, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned uh, with the Brown v. Board ruling in 1954. I think that was the year. Um, so the, the, whether this is a new new territory for Chief Justice Roberts or whether he just decided, you know what, as he put it, we're not here to evaluate the wisdom of the law, just whether or not it's constitutional. Right. Well, some uh, wags on the right wing have said that, uh, oh, this is good news for Romney because now the presidential campaign becomes about Obamacare. And I'm not quite sure that's true because, of course, Mitt Romney has a similar history with a very similar sort of health care outlook. Yeah. And I think that the politics of this is still a little unknowable um, because polls show that the country is relatively even, evenly split on the issue uh, when individual components of the so-called Affordable Health Care Act are broken down. Most Americans agree with the provisions, mm -hmm. and very few of them have actually been implemented. So the argument that this is somehow destroying the economy or creating all this uncertainty, I think, is false. I think that the other problem that the Republic—obviously, Romney's got all kinds of problems running with this issue, because the essence of this act, which uh, was uh, negotiated uh, probably over too long of a period with too many cooks mm -hmm. spoiling the broth, as the saying goes— um, one of the key uh, interest groups, by the way, that switched sides in, in actually endorsing these modest reforms were, was the AMA, because throughout American history, many, many presidents have attempted to expand coverage. It's important to realize that the so-called employer-based coverage was essentially adopted during World War II, and it was essentially a compensation for the fact that there were ration rationing was going on wages were frozen and it was a sort of an extra incentive uh, uh sort of a perk so to mm -hmm. speak that was given to workers and that is essentially became the modus operandi of our economic our modern economic system um that's why teacher pay is uh, relatively lesser than many other professions because of the hitherto for 
pretty generous uh, benefits packages. Yeah, and one of the other big, uh, I think, falsehoods that's been accompanying this debate is this, you know, this this pejorative Obamacare. Well, maybe Obama will take that that you know that little uh, characterization at this point. He's already uh, converted it into a campaign slogan, but the actual act itself is well known to be a, essentially a Richard Nixon idea that John Chafee, uh, you know, metamorphized. And then the Massachusetts state legislature right. took up during Mitt Romney's tenure as governor. Ted Kennedy played a big role in the uh, in crafting the Mass- Massachusetts legislation. And as for mandates, they've pointed out there's all kinds of mandates in the Constitution. We don't need to go into all of the... Uh, Issues, but one of the problems with discussing this issue is it's very complicated legislation. Uh, there's lots of little individual components, some you said better it's than others. Twenty-seven hundred pages long. Well, that was one of the things that Scalia used in scoffing uh, the law or trying to denigrate the law. You know, he of course brought in broccoli. Um, <laughs> that was uh, got to go down as one of the more bizarre moments uh, in the Supreme Court's history. Yeah. That broccoli metaphor was deeply flawed. <laughs> well, it just didn't work. Yeah, it, it didn't work because they're not the same. I, I think that uh, Ginsburg and dissenting, because um, it was a complicated decision with some concurring uh, opinions here and there, but she pointed out that health care is a commodity that we eventually all use at some point, like it or not. Mm-hmm. And the real issue with the... Uh, Swiss cheese form of the American healthcare system, because we've noted down here before that America's really got four systems, including the third world system. Uh, this does expand coverage in theory, uh, adding about 30 million people to the rolls. And the concept of broadening coverage to uh, enhance the risk pool, as far as the insurance goes, uh, is one of the main goals of the of the. Um, Operation, but the thing about affordability—that—that's where I get into some big problems with the characterization of this law. The conservatives have complained about Obamacare, but they have not dealt with the fact that insurance premiums have gone up 300 percent in the last decade. And this happened under George Bush. Uh, this system is no longer sustainable. Uh, the way our healthcare system has to be modified, it's at it, in in many ways, and it's been far too long. All the delays that have taken place over the really over the last 50 years, because even Truman uh, introduced some uh, expansion of healthcare back in the late 40s. Uh, it, it, it's just mind-boggling to me how uh, in, incompetent uh, the American system has been regarding this problem well that's just it if this you know attempted solution is flawed it's because the system it's trying to fix is deeply flawed and uh, perhaps the direction to head into ultimately is a decommodification of health care and treat it as something more like a right uh, there's enough money spent and wasted uh, in this country on air conditioning in afghanistan and other uh, expensive boondoggles that uh, clearly the wealth is there there's jobs in health care uh, there is a way to make uh, taking care of each other pay for itself. Indeed. By making jobs out of it and reappraising the entire uh, structure of the system. So the superstructure is what's flawed. Uh, getting it fixed, <laughs> another problem altogether. Yeah, and this, this Medicaid uh, loophole problem is going to be very uh, strange 
uh, as it goes forward, because I, I heard today on the news that four governors have already announced they're not going to expand Medicaid. Interesting to note that they're all linked to the Tea Party. Uh, we're talking about Scott Walker in Wisconsin, Nikki Haley in South Carolina, Rick Scott, uh, who uh, seems to have pilfered over a billion dollars in fraudulent Medicare um, profits when he ran a corporation in Florida. Mm. Still got elected. Um, remarkable stuff. He's got to be one of the biggest uh, crooks ever elected to office. Uh, we're, I don't even think Boss Tweed <laughs> actually held office. There's a Where is Thomas Nast now that we need him? There's a mystery about that, but uh, they've all uh, announced that they're uh, not even going to expand Medicaid because this is another complicated aspect of the whole of the whole case. Um, so, uh, you know, more troubling to me over this past week, because uh, I, I actually thought that the law would be upheld under either uh, the, the right to tax or the Congress's right to tax or under interstate commerce. It's interesting to note, by the way, in the 30s when they had a lot of these sorts of debates about uh, interstate commerce and uh, the right of government to regulate things, uh, it was Owen Roberts, not to be confused with John Roberts, who actually cited Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Papers in explaining Congress's, uh, quote, right to tax was uh, engaged in, quote, helping the general welfare. And I'm sort of paraphrasing there, but uh, this book uh, that I recommended by James Dixon, FDR and the Chief Justice, the President of the Supreme Court, and the epic battle over the New Deal, highly recommended to uh, get a flavor for the court battle that occurred in the 1930s that's occurring once again today because I would argue we essentially have um, four liberals and heretofore four conservatives with Anthony Kennedy being effectively the swing vote because mm -hmm. as this sort of brief analysis shows, uh, by the way, Alito has never sided with the liberals. So in other words, Roberts and Alito have voted in, in five to four decisions since 2006 have essentially voted together every single time. And it's only uh, Kennedy. Thomas and uh, Scalia, by the way, have voted the liberals twice, but those are both on sort of obscure cases. Thomas voted the liberals twice on damage uh, questions, um, one involving an injured locomotive engineer and the other a tugboat worker. <laughs> Go figure. Well, Scalia and Thomas are pretty much in lockstep. Yeah. And uh, Scalia has ruled um, with the liberals over some sort of regulatory things. But Kennedy has voted with the liberals 25 times, so uh, he is still the swing vote. The question is, I think, going forward, is, is Roberts going to modify his approach to his role in history regarding the Supreme Court? Politically, this is a, I would say, a minor victory for Barack Obama. It's interesting to note, by the way, in 35 and 36, when the uh, Supreme Court struck down a lot of the New Deal legislation, FDR was able to use it as a big campaign issue in the 36 election, and he won in the biggest landslide in American history. And he had coattails. He had an advantage in the Senate after the 36 election. Get this, 70 to 26. <laughs> that made uh, passing uh, New Deal legislation even easier though the Democratic Party was a strange coalition of different uh, interest groups, factions, and subgroups of the American uh, demography. So uh, 
whether Obama gets a, a political boost from this, I think is a little unknown. Obviously, the energy on the surface, the way the media covers this, uh, would sh- sort of demonstrate that the conservatives may benefit from this. But I think it At once initially, initially. But I think once the education yeah. process goes, is uh, in other words, this might be more of a salesmanship job here mm-hmm. that Obama's got to sell this a little better or figure out some you know some sort of surrogate to sell it a little better uh, to the public about what the actual benefits are because I'm not sure that Ka- uh, Catherine Sebelius, the uh, health uh, secretary, is the right uh, vehicle. To, to enhance this argument, but maybe she'll become more prominent uh, publicly. We shall see. Uh, more troubling to me over the past week regarding this uh, the Supreme Court uh, decisions was the fact that the Citizens United uh, uh, case was essentially upheld regarding a state law. Oh, the Montana case. In Montana yeah. regarding bribery, a law that goes back uh, quite a number of years and I see no reason why the law was unconstitutional, other than the fact that they cited Citizens United as their justification for it, because the law was introduced to prevent mining corporations from buying up the Montana state legislature. And that strikes me as a uh, rational state purpose for legislation. And I don't see wh- how it violates the Constitution in any way, shape, or form. Bribery is a legitimate, preventing bribery is a legitimate state interest in passing legislation, and it does not impinge on the uh, free speech of anybody. But once again, it's uh, a convoluted concept of free speech, and I think it's sad. So I'll give the Supreme Court a brain damage award for uh, upholding Citizens United. That's one law that does need to be struck down. And one other remaining question is, when will Justice Antonin Scalia finally drop <laughs> from that poison bitter heart? Well, maybe if we somewhere s- deep start inside. sending him crates of broccoli. Yeah, I don't want broccoli. I didn't order any broccoli. Who's forcing me to eat broccoli? Nobody. <laughs> That's the point. Right. <laughs> and, of course, the analogy is, is uh, sort of silly. Uh, it just doesn't work because, unfortunately... Uh, you know, it's interesting. I think I read that uh, uninsured people cost the system about 6% of total health care spending. Um, that's a significant number that's probably around $50 million a year. $50 billion a year, I should say. That th- Those are translated into higher insurance premiums for everybody. Exactly. And higher costs for hospital uh, stuff. And one of the uh, areas... And diminished services in uh, eras of cuts. Yeah, and I don't understand why the uh, uh, conservative... The conservatives are essentially justifying uh, free riders, you know. And uh, that's another issue that needs to be addressed. You cannot... I mean, somebody's got to pay for the system somehow, and I think that the European uh, systems that they have in Germany, France, and Japan are the best systems, and we need to go probably at some point to a single-payer system. And by the way, a single-payer system would be a tax, and it would be completely constitutional. The really startling thing is that uh, Otto von Bismarck had a more progressive outlook yeah. on uh, health care <laughs> systems than, than we do today. Okay, Otto von Bismarck, people. <laughs> that's, that's not a good model to be behind. Who's most famously known for his... Uh, 
Blood and Iron? Well, Blood and Iron, but I was thinking more of uh, his, his comment. He said, God looks over fools, drunks, and the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, more on the uh, consequences of this in upcoming shows, because obviously this is going to be some sort of a campaign issue, though I still don't understand how Mitt Romney uses this to his advantage. It just doesn't make any sense. He backed this. So it's a flip-flop example. He's pandering to the far right to get the nomination, which apparently he's got, and now he's ignoring the the actual successes of the Massachusetts legislation that he signed. doesn't make any sense. So this may rattle the Tea Party hive a little bit, but uh, we'll see. I I think this is just going to fizzle out. But I don't understand why the—I mean, I understand why people object to paying for other people's health care, but their private employer systems aren't going to be altered much. Uh, They may be altered as a part of the law of unintended consequences. I don't know, but um, this legislation doesn't prohibit employers from offering health care. So if you have a system that you like, you're, you're set. What this does is it, it sets up the exchanges and mm-hmm. how that works and all the details about how that develops over time is unknown. But very few of the provisions of this law are actually in effect right now. It's, it's really only, I think, the, the children, it's the pre-existing conditions right. and the children staying on their parents' plan up to the age of 26 mm-hmm. that have gone into effect. Everything else is sort of light at the end of the tunnel or maybe darkness at the end of the tunnel depending doom, on doom, I say. on your perspective yeah. and of course major brain damage awards uh out to fox as per usual for their uh bizarre early misread of this uh oh yeah they got into a race with result. cnn yeah and both to, got it wrong uh you got to read past page one to figure out what's really going on apparently <laughs> Well, I'm sure that Supreme Court rulings are, are more than one page. Right. <laughs> Maybe not 2,700 pages, but uh, I guess you got to read the fine print. But uh, I guess for once, we'll give John Roberts um, some praise for uh, showing some guts and, and departing from his previous ideological uh, myopia. If only he can uh, have a wake-up call on the Citizens United, perhaps. At yeah. Point. But... Maybe a little cash will change his mind. <laughs> maybe, or maybe some broccoli. Right. Maybe if the Supreme Court starts uh, allowing me to come over and prepare dinner for them, I'll. I'll you make... know, this broccoli's not so bad, Mr. Whaley. This yeah, is a I'll very make, tasty dish. I'll make them a nice little whip up a little beef and broccoli uh, with carrots and onions and garlic. Yum yum. <laughs> Wait, that's a Monty Python line. <laughs> And for Scalia, I'll throw in a little spam. That's right. <laughs> spam eggs, spam, and beef and broccoli and spam. And... Go with his spam-filled head. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's one of the most treacherous men in American politics today. He's just uh, he's bad for this country. Well, and he's, st- he's been stepping out of line lately. I-, I think there's actually some question marks about his, his sanity. His you know? composure. Al Franken may need to uh, show up at the Supreme Court with a straight jacket pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to remember he attempted to do that for Congress right. back when he was a working comedian, not a member. That's right. 
of this. Not note. to say that there aren't congressmen who are also working comedians. Yeah. Well, one of them. The theater Dan, of the Absurd. Dan Burton, the famous man that had a clown on his payroll. Oh, yeah, right. I think this guy was getting paid $55,000 a year <laughs> to show up at campaign events to entertain the children who can't vote. <laughs> but, nice work. Family values, family right. values. Speaking of family values, a little bit of time left for some Nixon uh, memorabilia. Uh, what do you got there in front of you? Today? Well, I've I, got I, the Cutler book uh, with me as well as Howard Hunt's pulp thriller House Dick. I'm just getting started on that. Well, I've got these 40th anniversaries of some of these remarkable conversations between Nixon and Haldeman. Uh, this from June 30th, since we just passed that uh, uh, anniversary where Nixon and Haldeman meet in the Oval Office for about an hour uh, discussing uh, the gun <laughs> that they found in the vault. We're talking about E. Howard Hunt here. So Nixon tells Haldeman, what, what, you mean the guy Hunt has a, I thought he left two months ago. He did. But he left his, there was a safe. He had an office over there, this is Haldeman, and he left some stuff in the safe. He had a safe, a safe in the office, and he had stuff in the safe. And among the things in the safe were a gun and a wiretapping kit or suitcase. What about the map of the convention? Obviously referring to uh, <clears throat> the Democratic convention. Uh, Haldeman says that isn't apparently true, which is kind of interesting. There was a lot of other stuff, including Hunt's forged Kennedy cables about the DM assassination and a psychological profile of Daniel Ellsberg, which was handled in a very supposedly high-level, discreet way with the Bureau. Dean had turned over the material to Al Patrick Gray. These uh, comments about Dean and Ellsberg are Cutler explaining what is actually going on there. But uh, Nixon says, But I understood, though, that I thought the Bureau thing, though, that they were going to watch, that they were going to keep up with this guy. You know what I mean? And they sort of ramble off into some conversations about uh, various high-ranking officials in the uh, in the Justice Department collaborating with uh, uh, the cover-up. He says, "Well, I'll, I'll have Walters go see them about this this fellow Hunt. I mean, after all, the gun and the wiretapping doesn't bother me a bit with the fellow. He's in the Cuban thing, the whole Cuban business. He's out of the country." Haldeman says, "No. Is he back in the country?" <laughs> Haldeman says he never went out, but it doesn't matter. He's at least, they say, his main stock and trade is he's a master of disguise. <laughs> Eduardo. He's someplace under some disguise, though he's supposed to go abroad. Well, it would seem to me that was Colson aware that he had the stuff in the safe and that sort of thing? Haldeman says, I don't know. Colson wasn't there when they opened the safe. <laughs> I don't think he knows what was in it. In fact, I'm sure he doesn't. They haven't told him what was in it. Did they find a map? <laughs> so here's Nixon. <laughs> yeah. Talking about unbelievable details. This is just... Uh, uh, Not two... a casual observer here. No, no. This is a couple <laughs> weeks after the, the, the break-in where they got caught that he called a third-rate burglary. And, of course, it's interesting because they go into the... Uh, 
a brief discussion of the double agent theory. About Hunt. Yeah, and and others, and we can talk about that more uh, in upcoming shows because Nixon becomes obsessed with this this double agent theory. (laughs) This fellow Hunt, he knows too damn much. He knows too much. (laughs) Get Walters over to the FBI to 